Good morning, everyone. It's so good to have each of you here in the house of the Lord. We're continuing today in our series of messages from 2 Corinthians, this treasure in jars of clay. Today you'll find out why I've titled the series that. Uh, Some of you are close enough to me that you know the big secret. I'm terrible with names. Uh, it's it's a, a constant source of shame to me that I, for some reason, I panic when people tell me their names and I know I'm going to forget it and I think it makes it even worse. Um, and I even people, those of you I've known for years, sometimes I'll be sit, standing right next to you and, and your name will just evaporate from my brain. I don't know what is wrong with me. I know exactly who Doeg the Edomite is for some insane reason. But um, I, I struggle to remember names. And I'm around other pastors. And boy, I mentioned my name in passing. And two weeks later, they, they greet me by name. And... You know, you sit down to dinner with them and an hour after we started eating, they know the name of the waitress. I mean, and I'm like, what the heck am I doing? Why, why am I even a pastor? Uh, you might say, well, there are mnemonic tricks, you know. There are ways you can train your brain. But here's the other dark secret. I'm mentally lazy. <laughs> I've never figured out how to get mnemonic tricks to work for me. What do you do with your shortcomings, your frailties, your limitations? Do you struggle to hide them as I often do? Do you admit them freely and openly? Paul seems to revel in these kinds of things, and he says he has a good reason for it. Let's talk about that a little bit. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. I've titled today's message, In Jars of Clay. Let's start in verse 1. Therefore, having this service, just as we have been shown mercy, we do not become discouraged. You might have heard the old interpretation principle, anytime you're reading the Bible and you see the word therefore, you should figure out what it's there for. Uh, Clearly, it's a connecting word, so it has something to do with what's gone before. And if we look at the passage we were looking at last week, the passage immediately before this, Paul has been comparing the Old Covenant to the New Covenant and showing how the Old Covenant, rooted as it is in something as spectacular as tablets of stone upon which God, with his very own finger, carved the Ten Commandments. I mean, that's pretty weighty stuff. Even so, that whole Old Covenant, from the very moment God gave it, the glory of it was fading because God always intended to eclipse it with the New Covenant covenant in Christ. And Paul has been arguing that this new covenant is uh, the one that we need to focus on and that the old covenant needs to be left behind and any version of human merit-based approaches to God needs to be left behind in favor of 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, by which God is shining his glory in our lives and allowing us with unveiled faces to gaze upon the very glory of God Almighty in the face of Jesus Christ, and mere exposure to that glory is transforming us from one degree of glory into the next degree of glory. Therefore, that's, that's what's gone before. Because of this, because this is the nature of the, the relationship we are in, in Christ with God. Therefore, having this service, and Paul describes his ministry as a service, that he has been entrusted by Christ. Having this service, just as we have been shown mercy, we do not become discouraged. Paul is very clear as he writes 2 Corinthians that he has had some rough days recently. In chapter 1, verse 8, he says that we were so utterly overwhelmed beyond our strength that we despaired even of living. Paul's not one given to hyperbole. He's just saying flat out honestly, I thought we were toast. I thought that was the end of it. And probably he's talking about that thing Demetrius did where he put the whole city into a riot and dragged people out and uh, Paul thought, man, that's the end. But God intervened and rescued him from that horrible moment and uh, Paul has been able to continue in this service. So Paul says, here's what I'm focusing on, the mercy Christ has shown me. And given that this is the reality, that God has allowed me to gaze unveiled upon the very glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, given that that is the reality of my life, I don't get discouraged. We, those with me, we who are working together, and notice how often Paul describes his ministry in the plural. Paul was not a lone ranger. He was always ministering with other people, and one of his favorite words is uh, sunergase, co-laborer, people who are working shoulder to shoulder with him. He's always using the plural to describe what he's doing. We do not become discouraged. It's very clear from Paul's writings that when we're doing service, when we are doing the service Christ has called us to, we are going to face difficulties and affliction and trials and and hardships, sometimes from without, sometimes just because we are frail and broken and uh, have many shortcomings of our own, but for whatever reason, uh, that we are constantly aware that this life exceeds us, that it's, it's more than we are capable of handling on our own. Paul says the way that we, or the reason we do not get discouraged is on the one hand the fact that we are, have our eyes fixed on this glorious face of Jesus Christ. Also, we have been shown mercy. We can choose to focus on the hardship on the difficulties, on the the things that are not right, the things that are not the way we wish they were, the things that are causing us pain. We can focus all of our attention on that and despair. Or we can focus our attention on Christ and on the mercies he faithfully delivers to us. And when we do that, we do not become discouraged. We weather 
the hardship. Verse 2, but we have renounced shameful hidden things, not conducting ourselves in craftiness or distorting God's message, but by open proclamation of the truth, commending ourselves to every human conscience before God. Paul talks about uh, a pattern of living that he's left behind things that he has renounced. Now the fact that he uses the word renounced means that these were things that once Paul embraced. Once Paul uh, included these in the way he went about living his life, but he has given up on these things. He has renounced them. How did Paul used to do things? Uh, He talks about shameful hidden things. There was a time in his life when Paul had skeletons in his closet and was very intent on keeping them hidden. There was a time in his life when Paul was very worried about things about himself that would be shameful and he was very intent on trying to hide them or trying to uh, manipulate the information about the image he projected to others so that all that people could see was glory and victory and, and uh, uh, an outstanding uh, person, a Pharisee of Pharisees, somebody who is blameless before the sight of others. Uh, Paul says, I've renounced that pattern of trying to hide shameful hidden things. He says, we no longer conduct ourselves in craftiness. We don't figure out how can I manipulate things? How can I somehow uh, use some devious method to accomplish what I'm trying to do? There are many people who do this who feel like all I need is the end goal and then how I get there is not important at all and I can use any methods available to me and if that means misrepresentation of the truth, I will do it. If it means manipulation of people to get what I want, then I will do it because I'm going to get the end goal no matter what and I will use any tool to get there. Paul says we don't do that. We don't conduct ourselves in craftiness. There's nothing underhanded or devious or, or no hidden agenda in anything about the way we go about things. He says we're not distorting God's message. There's a whole brand of biblical interpretation that is devoted to distorting God's message. And let me tell you how this works. People go to the Bible and become biblical scholars, but their approach is not the approach of one who is seeking to know God. Their approach is the, one, is the approach of one who is uh, doing a debate team approach. And the Bible becomes your source book. And let me tell you, the Bible has such breadth. It's a, bo- uh, a collection of 66 books written over a period of 1,500 years. And it contains the whole of God's written revelation for the whole human race. So yes, it's a book with a lot of depth and a lot of nuance and a whole lot of information. So yeah, if you come to a book like this and say, I want to argue this point, let me proof text and find the text that I can use to build the argument for what I want to say. If you're uh, taking a debate team approach to it, then that is your biblical interpretation. You are using the Bible to convey not God's message, but your message. Paul says, there was a time as a Pharisee when that was my approach. I was imposing my criteria on God's message and trying to make sure it fit my framework. I've given up 
distorting God's message. Paul understands that the message he needs to deliver is not his message, it's God's message. And Paul had lost all interest in arguing any of his own points about anything. His only interest was in sharing what God wanted to say. And his struggle was to understand ever more clearly what is it that God is trying to say. And how can I best convey that to others? It's important in studying God's word to come before it with uh, humility and with a desire to hear God. Not with a desire to prop up our presuppositions or to uh, further our own understanding of things, to somehow validate what we've always told ourselves is true, but to honestly surrender to the truth of God's message, whatever it may be. People in the life of the church who devote themselves to the proclamation and the teaching of God's message. People who preach from God's words and people who lead Bible studies into God's word. People who come to these things and come and sit to hear God's message preached or come to a Sunday school and or to a Bible study class. They have come because they want to hear what God has to say, not what you have to say. And the task of preaching or teaching is not conveying to others what we think about anything. I have nothing useful to say to you, I'm sorry. And I hope you're not looking for my opinion on anything because it's worthless. But God has a a, a word, a message that is life eternal. Paul says, I have no interest in distorting it. I am trying to surrender to it and to understand it and to hear it and to convey it as clearly as I know how. And hopefully those of us in in the life of our church who are doing the task of sharing from God's word are engaging in it in this way with this humility and surrender to the message itself so that it is God's message, not my opinion that we're trying to share. So this is what he's given up on. This uh, curating the perfect image of myself, this uh, shameful hidden things that I was engaged in and uh, using craftiness and manipulation and distorting God's, I've given all that up. So how has Paul and those with him, how have they uh, devoted themselves to this ministry? He says, open proclamation of the truth. That's how he describes his ministry, an open proclamation of the truth. No hidden agendas, no tiptoeing around things, no secretiveness, but just openly and plainly speaking the truth of God. That means that Paul was openly and willingly communicating things that people might not have wanted to hear because it's not his message, it's God's message. So sometimes you say things people don't want to hear. He did not try to tailor the message to what people wanted to hear. By the same token, he didn't hold back uh, from sharing the honest truth uh, of, of his own frailty and his own weakness, an open proclamation of the truth. There was no pretense in what he was doing, the way he went about ministry. Paul was not fronting. He was not putting up some false image of himself for others to see. 
He was just openly proclaiming the simple truth. Let me remove that word simple. Sometimes the truth isn't simple. But he was openly proclaiming the truth, not twisting it, not manipulating it. And in so doing, in honestly and openly proclaiming all of the truth God had given him to proclaim, uh, he says that's how we are commending ourselves to every human conscience. That is the way we are uh, validating that what we are sharing is genuine and true and, and worthy of being received. A common complaint against people who proclaim God's word is that they are oftentimes found to have deceived, to have engaged in uh, taking money that they shouldn't take or, or uh, doing things they shouldn't do and have abused their position in ministry for their own personal benefit. And many times people are very jaded when it comes to Christian leaders because of people like that. Paul says the way we have commended ourselves to the conscience of every human being is by simply living an honest and open, truthful life. Nothing complicated about it. Some of the worst moments in the church are when we try to hide things, when we try to cover things up, when we try to manipulate the truth, and we are not open and truthful about things. Paul says the way we commend ourselves to every human conscience is by open proclamation of the truth. What people should know about Christians is that they tell you things openly and honestly. There's no, nothing being hidden. But notice, Paul's not just focused on people around him, on their reception or perception of him, although that is something he's concerned about, not misrepresenting Christ, but doing so in a way that commends him to the conscience of every human being. But that is not the ultimate focus of Paul in the ministry he is doing. He is doing this before God. Because Paul understood that his ministry, even though it was focused and targeted towards every human being around him, and even though he was serving humankind by proclaiming this truth, ultimately it was his act of worship to God. The whole reason Paul did any of this was that he loved the Christ who had rescued him, and he wanted to honor him. And he did this and lived his life as an act of, of presenting his whole life as a living sacrifice to God. An act of worship. And that was his ultimate focus. Was not on people, but on God. <clears throat> I think that's an important key to ministry. If it ever becomes about people and not about God, our, our perspective shifts and it begins to get twisted it begins to go the wrong direction. Paul said, I'm doing all of this before the whole human race, but most importantly, before God. When you're doing it that way, then it doesn't matter whether anybody is seeing you or not. It doesn't matter whether anybody is going to be able to follow up and find out that you did it or didn't. You're not doing it to impress people. You're doing it because you love God. And there's no context in which there's anything to hide from him. 
Verse 3, but even if our gospel has been veiled, it is veiled in those who are being destroyed, in whom the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who do not believe, so that the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, will not shine in them. For we are not preaching ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. Because the God who said, out of the darkness, light will shine, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul in these verses describes two ways of living, a veiled way and an unveiled way. Now he says, yes, we are openly proclaiming the truth and in this way commending ourselves, recommending ourselves to the whole human race around us. But Paul is uh, honest about this. Not everybody is receiving what we are offering. We are sharing the good message of forgiveness of sins and life eternal, restoration of a broken relationship with God and entry into a new relationship that will last into eternity. We are proclaiming this message, but not everybody receives it. Not everybody even sees it. The things we're talking about, the things we are openly describing to people, some people, even though they hear our words, They don't understand what we're talking about. It sounds foreign and it doesn't click because, he says, our gospel is veiled in the lives of some people. What lives? The lives of those who are being destroyed. There are two kinds of people in the world. There are people whose lives are being destroyed and there are people whose lives are being redeemed. You are either in the process of dying or living. Those are the only two ways humans can live their lives. And the difference between the two is Jesus. So there are some who are not in Christ, who do not see his glory, who are not part of what he is up to and are in a process of their lives being destroyed because that is the only ultimate result of sin in our lives. Sin is destruction. Every time we turn from God to ourselves and pursue another path and try to do things in a self-centered manner, the end result of that is inevitably going to be destruction and death. We will burn through relationships in our lives. We will burn through the goodness that may have at one point been in our hearts and it will dim through the years and we will be in this constant process of approaching the ultimate sentence of eternal death. So if that's the life of the person, then the gospel, when they hear it, uh, there's a veil that keeps them from perceiving what you are describing to them. And he says more about this. In whom the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. And there's the key. You hear the gospel, the invitation. God says, come to me, renounce this life without me. Surrender to me and allow me to share my glory with you eternally. If, if you respond to that in faith and say, I want that. I will open myself up to that, Jesus. In those lives, the veil is removed, but the the people who have this veil that prevents them from perceiving it are those who have responded to that gospel invitation and said, no, no thanks. I don't want it. I'd rather do it my way. 
What happens in those lives, those who do not respond in faith? Well, if they have not turned to Jesus for rescue, they are still in the clutches of a figure Paul describes here as the God of this age. Paul held to the common view of many Jews in his day that there are two ages. There is a current evil age in which the powers and force of evil are operating throughout the world and the life of those who turn to God and pursue a different type of living, pursue a right approach to life uh, is going to be difficult and you're going to be mistreated and abused because the world has no interest or patience with that kind of person. There's the current evil age and the, the hope based on the promises God gave in Scripture that there is coming an age after this one in which God will right every wrong, in which evil will be purged from creation and all that there will be is right forever. So Paul describes a figure as the God, not of eternity, but the God of this age. And by that he means this current evil age. Uh, I believe he's speaking of Satan, whom in other passages, Ephesians 2, 2, he describes as the prince of the powers of the air. It's a way of, of using God with a little g in the sense of the polytheistic mindset of his day, a God of immense influence over this sphere of creation, this period of human history. But his time of influence is limited to this age. And yet he has tremendous influence. We complain about the problem of wars and evil and the abuses of the wealthy and powerful. And we keep thinking if we get the right government in place, it'll fix it all. And we have tried every kind of government the human mind has been able to conceive of. And they, none of them has succeeded in eradicating problems like corruption, problems like abuse of power. Uh, it, it's a constant reality because the God of this age continues to exercise his dark authority over this world. Those who hear the invitation to be rescued in Christ and say no thanks, who refuse to believe, remain under the power of the God of this age. This is one of the biggest lies of Satan. That you can say no to God and be the free soul driver of your life. Now, if you renounce Christ, you have surrendered to, to Satan as the dominant authority in your life. And you will do what the world around you is doing. And you will live as the world around you is living. And you will conform to the pressures and uh, structures of the world that has been built in rejection of Christ. What happens? The God of this age blinds the minds of those who refuse to believe. They can't see it. Some of you here today may be some of those people who've not yet surrendered your heart to Jesus and everything I'm describing to you sounds like a fairy tale. It sounds crazy. It sounds impossible because you're blinded absolutely. Your mind cannot even conceive of it. You may think I'm crazy. That's the nature of it because the only way to see it is to open yourself up to it, is to surrender. And what happens when we allow this veil to remain, when we refuse to turn in faith, 
The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, will not shine in. I have encountered the glory of the gospel. The glory of Christ, the image of God, shining on me in the visage of Jesus Christ. Not physically, I have not physically witnessed the face of Christ. But I have absolutely experienced the spiritual reality of encountering the glory of Christ. In those who refuse to believe, there is no ability to see that. This full glory of God who is bringing to us the very image of God, Christ, uh, will not shine in them. Now, Paul says, as we're going about preaching, we're not preaching ourselves. It's not self-promotion. Paul did not brand his ministry with his name. It did not become the ministry of Paul. And today we have many very popular ministries that go on and they're all attached to a name. And there's this grand uh, structure that is built around one name. And that person dies and it just kind of all fades away. Paul says we're not preaching ourselves as Lord. We're preaching Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. We're preaching Jesus Christ as Lord. What does Paul say about himself? We are your slaves for Jesus' sake. Jesus is Lord. We are not. What are we? We are slaves. In fact, Christ has tasked us as his slaves with serving you in Corinth. And even though Paul was going through many challenges and a very difficult time of ministry in Ephesus, he was investing countless hours and prayers and thoughts and letters and all this on the, what was going on in Corinth. He wrote both of the letters we have and probably at least one or two more during this period to the church in Corinth. He, was, he did a visit we know nothing about. <coughs> and, and was deeply invested in what God was up to in the life of the Corinthian believers. Why? Because Jesus had tasked Paul and those with him with serving the needs of this congregation in Corinth. The church needs leaders like this who do not proclaim themselves as Lord. Too often... Leaders, when they become really popular and really famous, uh, they, they behave like, like uh, stars do in our world, like celebrities do in our world. And they have their pampered little uh, areas and people can't approach them or touch them or intervene with them. And uh, they are being served hand and foot by people, by a whole, uh, uh, a whole army of servants that are catering to their every need and they have exactly the, the brand of water they want in their room and they have all these little things, every detail and they don't go anywhere without their long list of demands of things they need and ways in which they need to be served as though they are proclaiming themselves as lords. The church has had too many leaders like that. We don't need any more. 
We need leaders who only proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. There is only one Lord. There is only one person in charge of this church, and it is not me. This is not my church. This is Christ's church. And I am not the one who runs this church. Jesus runs this church. What is my job? To be your slave. My job is to live my life serving you. We need leaders who only proclaim the lordship of Christ and who surrender themselves to the life of slaves of others. That's exactly how Jesus came to us. He did not come and sit on a throne somewhere. He came as a servant and he came to serve us. He did not come to be served but to serve. We need leaders who reflect that and who exalt Christ, not themselves. Paul goes on to talk about this glory that is shown in our hearts. It's the God who said, out of darkness light will shine. And Paul is kind of conflating the first three verses of Genesis there where everything was in darkness and uh, God spoke the light into existence and said, let there be light and there was light. He kind of conflates the whole thing and says, out of darkness light will shine. God, the very God who spoke spoke light into existence without whose intervention a creation would be in utter darkness that is the God who is shining in our hearts and lives and the kind of light he's shining it's not a physical light it's the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. There are two ways to live life. You, we enter into this with this veil. As soon as we reach any age where we're aware of anything, we've all made the same choice. We have chosen to turn from God and be the God, little God, little tyrant of our own life and our own story. And we have all entered into this and the veil is firmly in place. We have no clue as to the glory of God. And we hear the gospel and, and if we respond uh, with rejection then the veil remains and we will never know in this life the glory of God. We will be blinded to it. And it will all sound like fairy tales and made up stuff when other people talk about it. Or we can respond to this invitation that is the gospel message with open surrender and say, I will put my trust not in myself but in you Jesus. I will renounce this life without you and I will surrender my life to whatever it is you have in mind and I want you to shine your light in me. And in that life, God removes the veil and he grants us by the gift of his Holy Spirit within access to gaze upon the very glory of God, the God who spoke light itself into existence. And he shines on us. And this light that is ever <coughs> growing in us <coughs> and ever transforming us into the likeness of that very same glory is the very light to be seen in the face of Jesus Christ. It is centered in the person of Jesus Christ. It is the light that comes from knowing him. 
verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. So that the extraordinary quality of the power is God's and not from us. Who are pressed in every way but not crushed. At a loss but not losing it. Persecuted but not abandoned. Knocked down but not destroyed. Always carrying about the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus might also be made known in our body. For we who live are always being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus might also be revealed in our mortal flesh. So that death is at work in us, but life in you. How to describe the life of those who have surrendered to Christ and who gaze with unveiled faces on the very glory of God in Jesus Christ. How to describe that life. Paul says this this knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ, this precious, beautiful, glorious knowledge of God is, is like the most priceless, valuable treasure you could imagine. And we are the jars of baked clay holding it. At this time, there were many ways you could create enclosures to hold things. In fact, Corinth at this time was well known for its fine bronze vases. And they had beautifully ornate vases of bronze that you could put very price, very valuable things into. Uh, the Jews uh, had large uh, jars of stone that they would use to hold water for purification. There are so much better materials to use for something glorious. Have you ever seen the sarcophagus of a Roman, I mean, of a, an Egyptian king? Just putting the body of this king, it's supposed to be so glorious, so the enclosure has to match the glory of the thing within, right? So these sarcophagi are these elaborate, painted with gold and all these enormous, beautiful things. Paul says that's not the way, that's not the image here. We would think that a treasure of such value would be placed in the most beautiful casing possible so that there's no mistaking the value of it. Some beautiful treasure chest or something ornate and elaborate and precious. Paul says that's not at all what God has done with us. We are not glorious We're just jars of baked clay. Now, of all the containers you could choose to use, a jar of clay was the least valuable, the most common, the most worthless of them all. We all have clay vessels in our houses today. I bet there's not a person in this room that doesn't have one. We don't all have gold vases. We don't have silver ornate things. Maybe a few of us do. But we all have clay stuff. We all have ceramic or porcelain something or other. I remember when we first moved to the States and didn't have a penny, and I was starting to go to seminary uh, back in 2001, we went to Walmart and bought a one-box set. How much was it, Ellie? Like 20 bucks, 30? I don't know. It had like plates and small plates and big plates and mugs and forks, and it had everything. And it was the cheapest Uh, piece of junk uh, we ever owned I think Um, that's what he's describing here we are just this worthless bit of clay and 
within this worthless bit of clay. God has chosen to place the treasure that is himself. Why? Why do it this way? Paul says there's a reason. Because when God does it this way, the extraordinary quality of the power that becomes evident in that jar of clay, people cannot mistake it and say, wow, that is a really impressive jar of clay. All people can say is, wow, that glorious power had to have come from what's within, not from the jar itself. It, it's God's, and it did not come from us. <clears throat> I think so many times we focus on presenting this curated version of ourselves so that the world sees a put-together, uh, righteous, uh, praiseworthy, great person, and they are uh, impressed with us. And Paul is saying that's not the way it works. There's no need to curate anything, no need to uh, uh, do some flashy spin work on your own life and your image to present this flawless image of a person who is worthy and great and perfect. That's not the approach. In fact, you need to embrace the fact that all you are is a jar of clay that you are common, that you are fragile, that you have many, many shortcomings, and that you are weak, that you need to embrace openly so that when people see God doing glorious things in your life, there is absolutely no way they're going to say, wow, that person is glorious. They're going to have to say, God does glorious things in some pretty messed up people. The power is not from us, it's from God. And notice how he describes themselves. And I think in this letter, Paul is combating a triumphant, victorious version of the Christian faith where you proclaim your own glory and power and authority and you're wielding all this power in the spirit. And we see it today a lot in the world where people have this version of themselves where they have wield this great power and everybody is uh, in awe of them. Paul does just the opposite. He describes his ministry in this way. We are pressed in every way, but not crushed. We're at a loss. We don't know what's going on half the time. We, we are befuddled and confused, but we've not lost it. We have not despaired. We have not uh, uh, been uh, dismantled by this uncertainty. We are persecuted, but God has not abandoned us. Paul has experienced this in his day, and little would Paul know that 2,000 years later, through 2,000 years of the history of the Christian faith, this has been a consistent reality. And one of the most powerful witnesses to the glory and power of God is the thriving of the gospel in places where it is being severely persecuted. To this day, the areas in the world where more and more people are turning to faith in Christ are the areas in the world where it is most fiercely persecuted and oppressed. 
How do you explain that? People aren't glorious. When you make things hard for people, they give up, they get crushed. Why does the gospel continue to thrive? The first 300 years of the gospel, it was severely persecuted throughout the whole Roman Empire. But eventually, the whole Roman Empire crumbled to dust and the gospel continued. It's not because Christians are such great people and we're so powerful and so glorious. It's because the God who inhabits us is glorious. It's because His power is at work in us. And when people look at us and see that we are not crushed by these things, they have to say, something fishy is going on here. People can't do the kind of things this person is doing. People can't survive the kinds of things this person is surviving. It is the power of God being visible in our weakness. Knocked down, but not destroyed. Always caring about the death of Jesus in our body. How to describe this life of ministry, Paul said. <clears throat> it's like we're always carrying around death. Our frailty, our shortcomings, our weaknesses, the crumbling of things in our lives. That is a constant reality. We are carrying death around with us constantly. And Paul says, we embrace that. We carry this around. Notice he's talking in the plural, but then he switches to the singular, in our body, not bodies. So he's not talking about just something that's happening to a bunch of individuals, but he's talking about what's happening to them as a combined something in Christ, as the body of Christ. It is the common experience of us all that we are carrying about the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus might also be made known in our body. Paul embraces the persecutions and the uncertainties and the hardships and the oppression and the, the being knocked down. He embraces all of that because in embracing that, he is surrendering to the sufficiency of Christ alone. And he is saying, I don't have to be strong enough. I don't have to have it together. I don't have to know. I don't have to defend. I can rely on Jesus and he will gloriously intervene in my life. I surrender to it. I embrace the death of Jesus in my body, in our body, so that the life of Jesus can be made evident. If we never let Jesus have to intervene on our behalf, if we're constantly trying to solve it ourselves, if we are constantly trying to proclaim our sufficiency, we never leave space for Jesus to demonstrate his glory in our lives. Paul embraced his weakness, his frailty, his commonness. Because he knew that by embracing that, he was opening himself up fully to God's glory. <coughs> we who live are always being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. Some are being destroyed. We who are in Christ are those who live. And yet, paradoxically, we are constantly being delivered over to death in these many areas of living and we're embracing it for the sake of Jesus so that the life of Jesus can be revealed in our mortal flesh. 
in our finitude and weakness and frailty. We embrace all of that so that Christ's glory can be seen in our lives. Paul says, death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul has embraced all of this and gone through very, a very difficult two and a half years in Ephesus. Hardship and struggles and attacks from without and within and uh, all of this. He has endured all of this and embraced the reality that it is more than he can handle and happily surrendered to it and left himself in utter dependence on Christ to intervene. And the result had been the two and a half most powerful years in his ministry. Christ has come through gloriously. And Paul says, yeah, all we've been experiencing is death. It's just been one thing after another. Our own frailty, our own uncertainty, the struggles, the difficulties. It's been death at work in us. But you know what? God has been doing, uh, bringing life to bear in your life. You see, in these two and a half years in Ephesus, Paul has written probably, possibly as much as four letters to the Corinthian church. Probably, uh, it's likely that he's actually gone and visited the Corinthian church and then come back to Ephesus to continue his work. He has been deeply involved in what's going on in Corinth this whole time. And he has involved them in his ministry, in his needs, in his own weakness. And they have prayed for him and lifted him up. He's already talked about that in the earlier chapters, how through their prayers, God has worked in his life and delivered him and done glorious things. And they have been participants in that. And Paul says, we have embraced this death and the result has been life for you. From our suffering, from our affliction, from our being squeezed like grapes that are going to be popped and pressured on every side. From us going through all of this, God has brought life to bear among you. And for that, I am grateful. Sometimes we're so self-centered, we think the only value in my suffering has to be that my life be better. That I become stronger, that I become more glorious, and that somehow I personally benefit from my suffering. Paul is saying, no, my suffering has been a benefit to you. And you know why Paul's happy about this? Because he loves the Corinthian church. One of the glorious things God invites us to enjoy is that our own affliction and suffering can become not just something that benefits me, but it can be something that benefits the people I love. And that is gloriously good. Stop being so self-centered and embrace the idea that your own affliction can benefit somebody other than you. That God can use that to benefit people you love. But since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, therefore I spoke. So also we believe, therefore we speak, knowing that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us up also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all these things are because of you, so that as grace abounds through more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul says... Uh, I'm, we are experiencing the same spirit of faith that psalmist, uh, the psalmist who wrote Psalm 116 
demonstrated as he wrote that psalm. It's an anonymous psalm, Psalm 116. It's a psalm of thanks to God and praise to God because the psalmist was facing death and devastation and God has delivered him. And in the psalm, he's celebrating how good and wonderful and great God is. That's very much what Paul's been through in the most recent two and a half years of his life. And he says, I'm embracing that same spirit of faith that the psalmist embraced when he said, I believed, I had faith in God, therefore I spoke. In other words, the psalmist is speaking out of his trust in God. Paul says, that's the way I speak out of. And in the midst of affliction, I'm not talking about the affliction, I'm talking about the God who is faithful in the midst of affliction. I am speaking out of faith. And I know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. Paul sees that God is faithful. And the very same God who did not abandon Jesus in the cold grave but raised him victorious over sin and death is the God who has promised to raise us. Whatever the moment we are facing might look like, however despairing or dark or impossible it may seem, we can speak out of faith and say, I don't know how we're getting there, but I know how this ends. It ends in me being raised up. It ends in victory and life. And it's not because I have figured it out. It's not because I see any way out of this. It's not because I have any power of my own. It is because my Lord is glorious and faithful. And I address my weakness and shortcoming based on his sufficiency. The God who raised Jesus will raise us up. And he says the same applies to you, Corinthian believers. He'll present us all together before Jesus. And Paul says, all these things are because of you. Again, Paul understands all the hardships he's been going through. It's not just because of him. It's not just for his personal edification. It is because God is doing something to benefit the Corinthian believers. Why are the Corinthian believers even involved in all of this. Paul's in Ephesus. There's no reason they even had to know anything about what's going on in his life. Why did they know? Why were they so deeply involved in what Paul was doing in Ephesus? Because Paul involved them. Paul shared his weakness. He shared his frailty. He shared his challenges openly and honestly with the church in Corinth so that as he's been going through these two and a half grueling years in Ephesus, the Corinthian church has been with him step by step. And that has happened because Paul involved them in it. He shared his frailty, his weakness, his shortcomings and begged them to come alongside him in prayer and lift him up and be a part of what's going on in Ephesus. And they've done so. The result is that as God has responded to this situation and grace has abounded through more and more people. You see, if Paul had never shared with the Corinthian believers, I think Paul, God still would have worked in Ephesus. He still would have done the, the things he did in Ephesus. But you know, it wouldn't, been, it wouldn't have been, the end result wouldn't have been as good because the, the believers in Corinth would not have benefited at all from any of that. 
But because Paul chose to involve them and chose to open up about their challenges and invited them to participate with him in what's going on, when God did the glorious things he was doing in Ephesus, the church in Corinth was a participant in it. And the result was as grace abounded to more and more people. This meant that there was a lot more thanksgiving than there would have been otherwise. And this brings glory to God. We can be tempted when we face our own frailties and limitations and hardships. We can be tempted to shut up about it. And somehow in American culture, we have this kind of toxic idea that it's noble to suffer in silence. That we shouldn't burden other people with our suffering. That we should keep it to ourselves. Uh, many other cultures are much better at, at dealing with death and loss than we are because we tend to pretend like nothing happened. Other cultures cry out loud on the streets for days. And they make a big show of it because there's nothing to hide about it. But we have this idea that it's noble to suffer in silence and we, we hide it. We don't share the burden. We don't share our weakness and frailty with each other. Maybe we're afraid that if people recognize how weak and frail we are, they will reject us, they will shun us. There's no need to be afraid of that. Guess what? We're all the same. We're all weak. We are all overwhelmed. The things that happen in our lives, these unexpected tragedies that overcome us, and our own inner failings, uh, it all adds up to this is more than we can handle. You're not alone in that. We all are going through this life the same way. And the sooner we learn to share this burden and to speak out of faith, not out of despair, but to speak our trust in the glorious God who raised Jesus from the dead, who has promised to raise us as well, who will not fail us and share that together with each other, then God can work through us and bring his grace to bear. And when we have shared the burden, the grace falls on all of us, not just me. The thanksgiving rises from all our hearts. We need to embrace our frailty, our finitude, our limitations, our weaknesses, because that is the only truth of our reality that bears sharing. And if we share this honestly together in Christ, then God's grace abounds to us all and we all are benefited when he intervenes and when he shares his glorious power in our lives. Jesus is glorious. He is the radiance, the very glory of God. To think that he would come and take up residence in our hearts. That he would inhabit our living. It just boggles the mind. It's unfathomable. Too great for words. 
When we turn to Jesus in faith, he comes to us and the veil that hid him from our sight is removed. We begin to gaze upon his glory and that glory transforms us from the inside out. But life this side of eternity is hard. We are still frail, weak, small, powerless. Believe it or not, that is good. Our weakness is the perfect context within which God can display his glorious power. And we have to learn to live our lives with an open acceptance of our own weakness, our own suffering, our own afflictions, our own smallness. As we embrace all these elements of death, God brings the victorious life of Christ to shine in our lives. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to offer up some fantasy of a perfect, put-together life. We are the simple jars of baked clay. If you're looking for glory, don't look to me, look to Christ. When people see the treasure of Christ shining through our lives, they know If we've been honest, they know that it's God at work, not us. There's no way that could have come from us. We have to learn to embrace this as our pattern for living, not just individually, but together. Sharing our weaknesses freely with one another and lifting them up to God so that He can speak His life into the death that we are experiencing. Is your life one of these clay jars filled with priceless treasure? We're going to sing a song of invitation. I want to challenge you to do something in response to God's word today. Maybe you're one of those who still has that veil. I talk to you about the glory in the face of Jesus Christ and you think I'm talking about uh, fantasy. I'm talking about something you have no frame of reference for. If that's you this morning, I want to challenge you to surrender your unwillingness to put your faith in Jesus, to surrender your own dominion and control over your own heart and life and future, and to say, I'm going to give all that up. Jesus, take my life. I want to see all that glory. If that's you this morning, I challenge you to come forward. There are going to be people here at the front on either side. Take their hand and say, I want to surrender my life to Jesus today. I want to view the glory of God in the face of Christ. Will you help me pray and ask him into my life? And they will do that with you. Maybe you already know Christ and you're reminded today that you've been focusing on the wrong things, on trying to make yourself the glorious thing to be beholden. And you realize you have uh, forgotten to embrace who you really are so that Christ can be all that he is in you. If that's you, come and share and let those who are here at the front pray with you and encourage you as you recommit yourself to surrender fully to Christ. Whatever God has put in your heart today, this is your time to respond. Let's all stand. We have the people who are going to help with the invitation. If you'll come here to the front, please come while we sing.